Hi and welcome to RTB, the podcast from the Northeast Ambulance Service. I'm Jason O'Connell, a clinical education officer at NIAS, and in this episode I speak to specialist paramedic Luke Morrison about traumatic cardiac arrest. In our chat, Luke tells me the difference between a traumatic cardiac arrest and regular ones, what his advice would be for crews dealing with this type of situation, and how he sees the specialist paramedic role expanding in the future. Luke, thanks for joining us on RTB. Would you mind having a little bit of an introduction about yourself, mate? Yeah, of course. Thanks for uh, asking me to come along. Uh, so I'm Luke Morrison. I am from Australia. I originally trained as a nurse, and then I did my paramedic degree in Australia. My first job as a paramedic was in London. I worked in London for uh, four, four and a half years, and then I moved up to the Northeast to join the specialist paramedic role, which was October uh, 2019. So specialist paramedic now, I suppose that makes us three, three and a half years, something like that. I've got a postgrad uh, diploma in critical care, paramedicine, uh, and obviously an undergrad degree. And um, yeah, we're full time up here at, uh, at NIAS. So you must have a fairly big workload um, for you guys. What makes up the, the biggest portion of your workload, do you think? It'd be trauma or medical? Uh, it'd be medical cardiac arrest is definitely our sort of number one as far as jobs we've responded to um you know it's not uncommon that you do two of those in a shift um but any yeah we certainly go to our fair share of major trauma as well or even significant trauma trauma that might fall short of major trauma but is still very significant trauma um acute behavioral disturbance uh and any any job where the crews might want a little bit of help we're more than happy to come along and and see if we can help to offer some guidance. Ah, oh, yeah, you've been a great asset on the road since since roles come in. It's been fantastic, like to to see it. And I say we we'll talk about it later. But I'm hoping that there's going, you know, we can talk a bit more about how the roles going to expand in the future and stuff like that. But if we think about um, traumatic cardiac arrest versus your your, for lack of a better term, our bog standard cardiac arrest, medical cardiac arrest. Obviously, there's there's quite a lot needs to be done in the first few minutes. Um. So the hot protocol, obviously, there's been a bit of a change in JR Calc's wording of that recently. So now it's become basically mandatory for every paramedic to provide a hot protocol for a traumatic cardiac arrest. Will we will we do a talk through on basically what what the hot protocol is? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the, it is JR Calc has sort of come along with the rest of uh, well, almost caught up to the rest of national guidance. Um, and there's quite a good flow chart now. And I think uh, if there's something I've learned recently after uh, having learned quite a hard lesson, uh, it's it's worth bringing up on scene. You know, this is something that we probably should be bringing up on our phones or the uh, tablet and go through the, the hot protocol and the, the little bullet points next to them to make sure we cover off everything uh, and make sure we haven't missed anything. I suppose uh, if we're talking about tra- traumatic cardiac in general, um, one of the things that we need to be careful of is that traumatic cardiac arrest is traumatic cardiac arrest. So um, uh, we need to make sure that these patients, are the, the etiology is trauma. Uh, so a lot of patients, maybe up to 20% of what we used to think were traumatic cardiac arrest, probably had a medical event and then had a trauma afterwards 
So traumatic cardiac arrest really has to be the etiology of the cardiac arrest. Uh, otherwise, we're working a medical cardiac arrest. And we, we need to try and make sure we, we rule out a medical cardiac arrest first uh, and then sort of go towards the hot protocol. Oh, that's good. Like, because like, <clears throat> I think it's quite scary for a lot of like. I think what, what was the figures again? Um, the bog standard para will basically go to two major traumas a year. One thing I've definitely figured out from um the training school is that like trauma is just an algorithm, really, isn't it? It's like it's like a normal cardiac arrest. It's it's follow an algorithm and see what you can fix. Yeah, and I think you know you can operate to a pretty high level if you follow the algorithm. <laughs> you know, it's designed that way. So if you bring it up and have a look, and you you um, make sensible decisions based on the information you have at the time, uh, you're going to end up providing really good care to the patient. Uh, and that's a that's a really good point you brought up as well earlier about um, actually getting it up on scene and using it as a flowchart to help you. We have a cardiac arrest aid. Why don't we use? a trauma rate as well <laughs> makes perfect sense doesn't it yeah absolutely absolutely and then maybe you know we should probably look at getting these printed off and put into the major trauma packs just so that um there's somewhere where we can get a physical copy as well because it's always um it's one of those jobs where you probably don't want to go digging your phone out of your pocket or trying to log into a, a uh, tablet oh, that's a really good point actually uh, maybe something we could look at in the future getting something put into the major trauma packs would be great even just a major trauma bypass in there would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. So, like, for everyone who's who's listening, what would be your advice, basically, around trauma? The goal should always be to prevent a cardiac arrest if we can. So, trying to look after our trauma patients, our significant or major trauma patients, in a, and treating them as if they are very fragile, which usually they are. Um, if you know, if your trauma patient has a a heart rate higher than their systolic blood pressure. So if their heart rate's 105 and their systolic blood pressure is 95, you should be quite worried uh, uh, to the point that you you ask for help and um, and treat them gently, move them gently, treat them gently. Particularly if you think maybe the etiology of the trauma or that the the, um, the the hypotension could be uh, from hypovolemia, from incompressible hemorrhage. So you know you've got an abdominal trauma or chest trauma, something that you probably are not going to be able to fix pre-hospitally, then treat them gently, call for help and start moving. You know, this is really important that we, we if, if your patient's not in cardiac arrest yet, that you start moving. Um, penetrating trauma in particular, we, should, we shouldn't be on scene for longer than it takes us to, to get the patient out to the ambulance. You know, if, if, you, if you've been stabbed in the chest or, or the abdomen, you should be on, on your way to hospital after we've arrived, you know, within 10 minutes. There's no reason why we should be hanging around. Um, these patients need a surgeon. Uh, they're, they're bleeding internally. You know, even if it looks like a small wound, you need to convince yourself that this is very serious. They could be bleeding very badly inside and we need to get them help. And the, 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 the therapies we have are not effective for, for, for trunk trauma, for, for abdominal chest trauma. So your TXA, it's not, it's not going to save his life as such. It, it, it's certainly something to, we need to do on the way in, for sure. It's proven to, to have a benefit, but these are patients that we need to start moving with. So, yeah, to, to sum up, my advice, I guess, would be penetrating trauma, move early if the patient's not in cardiac arrest, uh, update and get help. So update control, get help if you need it, uh, whether that's an intercept or 
um, on scene, but you know that penetrating trauma should probably be more of an intercept with um, enhanced care. Um, and then with your traumatic cardiac arrest, bring up bring up your guidance and go through it to make sure that you tick off all the boxes. Practice the skills. So needle thoracocentesis is not done very often. So practice the skills, um, and you, you will struggle to go wrong if you do bring up the guidance and go through it. I, I always think like unfortunately I've had to do a few in the road and I always found like my first few the scary part it wasn't the skill itself it was the decision to do it was the hardest part I think for me it was like have I definitely got attention here and I was like double guessing myself over and over again and eventually done it <laughs> you could actually see a little bit of improvement in the patient yeah that's a good point I mean in um traumatic cardiac arrest if um it, it almost needs to be an automatic thing. I mean, it, it, in traumatic cardiac arrest, the, the chance of having attention in your thorax um, well over, overrides the uh, danger of performing needle thoracocentesis. Um, in in patients that are spontaneously breathing, that 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 risk is no longer well in their favour. So that needs to be a serious decision if if the patient's still breathing. Um, but a patient that's in traumatic cardiac arrest, that's uh, you know blood trauma they've, they've got trunk trauma or, or significant yeah significant mechanism and it needs to be an automatic thing we just decompress both sides of the chest that's standard sort of protocol um the only exception to that is a traumatic cardiac arrest where you can see where what's happened so you know they've, they've got an amputated leg and they've hemorrhaged out of the leg and that's why they're in traumatic cardiac arrest then yeah okay they don't have a chest injury we don't need to decompress the chest but any other sort of mechanism car accidents that sort of thing it needs to be an automatic thing uh just decompress the chest and move on right i think it's probably it's pertinent as well to mention like the controlling of an external catastrophic hemorrhage if we can but that also would include um what we can do for internal so like things like the pelvic binder they're very important steps as well we need to stop everything leaking out so making sure we're we're getting a good team approach if we can to controlling that hemorrhage, I think is is probably one of the most effective things we can do as well. So if we've got, a, say, as you say, an amputation, it's getting good direct pressure on that and getting a tourniquet on as fast as we can to keep as much blood as we can inside as opposed to outside. It's certainly best, uh, yeah, so that we don't, we're not chasing our tail. If we can try and um, arrest the hemorrhage early on, then um, it's all the better. I mean, that that's why bringing up the flow chart is quite important. So, you know, traumatic cardiac arrest under hypovolemia is the subsection of splinting, uh, including pelvic hemorrhage. So you need to pull all the limbs to length, pelvic, bind pelvic binding, um, and then fluid and early TXA for your hypovolemia. So, um, you know, it's all in the guideline if, if we bring it up and use it, that's the thing. Aye. And I say that's a good, that's a good thing to, like, for anyone listening you know if you're not if you're not comfortable with that guideline definitely get it out have a look at it and make sure you're comfortable because as you say it should be nearly an automatic thing it should be we should be thinking and not thinking of this but doing it as a nearly as we would a full normal primary survey it becomes second nature yeah but again and again in the same as it should be automatic is to not trust yourself too much uh, i think we can all fall in the trap of doing a medical cardiac arrest and trusting that we've got it all and then someone pulls out a checklist and you go oh well actually i didn't think of that um so so you know crack on but also have someone bring it up and make sure double check that we haven't you know that we have got everything boxed off and that we're, we're all comfortable that we're doing everything we can 
so anyone who's like thinking of going into the spec role, would you have any advice for them? Things to study, things to to prepare for, or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we recruited in two thousand nineteen, there wasn't a uh, requirement to have a postgraduate qualification. That may change. So it's uh, you know it, it's certainly within your interest to do a postgrad qualification, whether it's a postgraduate diploma. But if we're not talking about education, it's about getting uh, the basics right. And a lot of the spec role is not actually the skills, really. That's a very small part of the role. The role is all about your communication and decision-making and your clinical assessments. The skills we can teach anyone, you know, that's, that's not a big deal. Um, the medications we can teach people when and where, but the decision-making uh, and the communication is something that you have to you have to have worked on for a long time uh, and become quite comfortable making difficult decisions. Um, so, yeah, I would say you certainly need to have a look at your education uh, and then uh, have a, you know, you can uh, come on a, on an observer shift with us, so there's a form you fill out on uh, SharePoint. Share, uh, was it SharePoint? Yeah. Uh, so if you type in observers, you'll get a, you get a form. You can fill that out and and come on an observation shift with a spec and tell tell them you're interested in the role, and they'll tell you what our job is. Because a, a lot of people might be a little bit shocked that you know it's not all real serious trauma and cardiac arrest. There's certainly a lot of that, but there's certainly a lot of uh, cardiac arrest where we don't undertake any specialist intervention and it's really just to support the crew for decision making and that is the bulk of my bulk of our work is just supporting decision making and very rarely is there um, significant skills used you know, certainly not every day we are using a specialist skill that's that's it could be easily said yeah do you see any new drugs any new skills or anything, new equipment coming online very shortly, I, I suspect we will get uh, intramuscular ketamine for uh, severe agitation or acute behavior disturbance. Um, it's it looks likely that we probably we, we're having a look at the data to see whether pediatric intubation is something that that our patient cohort might benefit from, uh, and whether we can safely deliver that. There's there's quite a few things. Um, that we're looking at but uh you know these things are the you know the nhs is a big clunky machine and things take a long time uh so the particularly you know the intramuscular ketamine that we are getting quite shortly uh that that's been in in works for 18 months now or, or two years even so we are looking at things um but Things will change. Things will there's likely to be expansion at some point, but uh, I don't know when, and I don't know what it will look like. Typical thing with the NHS: how long is a piece of string? <laughs> so, like, I think before we before we kind of wrap up, it's it probably good to mention all the skills you can actually bring. So, anyone listening can actually, if they're at a job, they can recognise, oh, this is something to spec, a skill the spec might bring. So, we've obviously mentioned the, the advanced decision making, but things like, um, say, ultrasound for ventricular movement and things like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, ultrasound can be very, very useful in traumatic cardiac arrest while we're talking about traumatic cardiac arrest. Uh, we can try and pick out the patients that are actually hypovolemic or not, depending on 
uh, ultrasound is still a little bit dependent on the spec who's using it, which, you know, some of us are a lot more proficient than others. I, I certainly struggle myself. But if you're proficient at ultrasound, you can uh, obviously pick up a tension pneumothorax, you can pick up a cardiac tamponade, you can pick up whether the IVC is collapsed or whether the, there is blood volume returning to the heart. Um, so ultrasound, quite very useful in trauma, but... Um, very useful, like you said, in medical cardiac arrest as well. So P, calling PEA arrest can be is not something to be taken lightly. And if you don't have ultrasound, that's quite a scary thing to have to do. A PEA cardiac arrest quite often is actually just a patient who's who's in a very low flow state. So we need to be quite serious about that. So yeah, uh, ultrasound uh, is certainly a, a fairly large part of our job. Um, there's drugs that we carry so we carry ketamine for pain relief uh, and soon to be for agitation midazolam for sedation of or rapid tranquilizations um, magnesium in preeclampsia and asthmatic patients iv salbutamol for asthmatic patients push dose adrenaline uh, which we carry for a few different things so it can be used in bradycardia can be used in post-rosc um, hypertension uh, or even peri-arrest hypertension but that's you need to be quite careful there uh, haloperidol we carry for rapid tranquilization we carry mechanical cpr uh, we've got quite a very well a very serious ventilator now uh, the result is the event i think it's called as event uh, so a very serious ventilator that can deliver PEEP as well as a lot of other things that we, we, we needed for a long time. Cardioversion pacing, finger thoracostomies, um, front of neck access. That's all I can think of at the moment. But it's quite a big suite of things. But like I said, you know, we can go multiple shifts without using any of this stuff. This is stuff that's used quite... Um, you know, it's sure it's part of our daily job, but it's, um, you know, it's quite often really we, we're just doing clinical assessment and decision-making support. Which is half the battle half time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's the advantage of a specialist paramedic role is that they are, uh, you know, targeted to critically unwell patients. So they have demonstrable experience in picking up the nuances of the care of these patients. Um and, and you know that's quite important now because a lot of a lot of uh, we've got we've gotten busier. Part of getting busier means that you're going to go to patients that are lower acuity more often. And it's it's true that you know that your standard road paramedic is not experiencing trauma in the same way that the standard road paramedic did ten years ago. Um, so being able to target people to trauma patients means that we maintain or trauma or serious critically injured patients means that we maintain a level of care that's um, that's good, high-quality level of care for, for those patient groups. Right. Well, I think that's everything we need to cover. So, Luke, mate, um, thanks very much for that. I really appreciate it, mate. It's been great having you. No problem. Thank you. I'm uh, grateful to be asked. And, uh, if you need anything else covered, I can uh, have a go again in the future. Thanks for listening to RTB. Please like the show in your podcast app. And if you have time, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard on RTB, or if you want to suggest a topic for us to cover in a future episode, 
you can email us at public.relations.nhs.uk.